A lot of focus has been on trying to identify surveillance and carceral practices as a moral failing, as opposed to the analytic of looking at it as a regime of governance and trying to understand what it means for these technologies to function that way. So it's not just surveillance as an aberration or technological violence as an aberration, but as an ordering principle for how we understand and live our lives. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. that articulate a prison industrial complex abolitionist perspective on data. We're so thrilled to be sharing this work with you all and hope that this is just the beginning of a conversation among abolitionist organizers and thinkers about how we can organize against these systems on our own terms. Now I am thrilled to introduce our moderator for today, Harsha Walia. Harsha is the author of Border and Wool and Undoing Border Imperialism and an organizer rooted in migrant justice, abolitionist, anti-racist, feminist, anti-imperialist, and anti-capitalist movements for over two decades. I know many of us have learned so much over the years through Harsha's work on the ground and her many written offerings. We're so thrilled to have her guide this conversation today. So turning it over to you, Harsha. Thank you so much. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you all for coming, for making time to spend your evening with us here today. And thank you to Community Justice Exchange and Haymarket for hosting this event. And also, I just wanted to thank the interpreters for all your vital accessibility work. Uh, we know how vital this work is to ensure that so many more people can participate in this panel. So thank you very much. And I'm so excited to have all of us here celebrating the release of this incredible new report by Community Justice Exchange titled From Data Criminalization to Prison Abolition. Please, if you haven't checked this out, I cannot emphasize enough how important and brilliant this work is, building, of course, on all the work that so many others have done. But it really is. It's a stunning website with visuals and infographics. There's a quiz that's coming soon, a take action and resource page. So please check it out, abolishdatacrim.org. Again, that's abolishdatacrim.org. And this report examines the interlocked machineries of migrant surveillance and describes the processes of data criminalization that we're gonna be talking a lot more about today. So I'm speaking to you today from the unceded Coast Salish territories. I'm on the lands of the Musqueam, the Tsleil-Waututh and the Squamish nations, the indigenous peoples who continue to steward these lands. And in the context of thinking about borders and migration and surveillance and criminalization, it's so important to think about how borders are a technology of control and divide particularly for and against indigenous people exercising their self-determination and sovereignty. So this is where I'm speaking from today. 
And of course, in the context of today and, and every day, but perhaps escalating in a way that we haven't seen in mainstream media, I should emphasize, slow down. Thank you. I'm going to slow down. I have a tendency to talk fast. Thank you for the reminder. Um, I was saying that, you know, today we're seeing um, in the news these the, this refrain, perhaps more so than ever, about the technologies of borders. Uh, what we're seeing at the Ukrainian and Polish border, at the Hungarian border, with the, the poorest border for some and the explicit exclusion of black and brown refugees on the move in Europe which we see reproduced all around the world, the ways in which borders are a carceral technology of exclusion, of apartheid, of citizenship denied to the world's majority, depending on which side of race and class and gender and more we fall on. Um, the US border, of course, a, a carceral technology and a technology of exclusion since its very formation and escalating today against Caribbean, Latin American, Haitian, and so many more migrants. So borders are a carceral technology that we know allows nation states and corporations to control the conditions and movements of labor and capital. Drawing on incarcerated organizers on the inside, Angela Davis and Gina Dent about a decade ago wrote that the prison is a border to explain the ways in which the separation of the free from the unfree characterizes carceral technologies. This conversation today is a place to situate data too as a bordering device. We see escalating discourses around migration range from far right, far right populism that's you know arguing for full out exclusion to liberal neoliberal centrist arguments for migrant population management schemes such as temporary work programs or so-called smart borders. Increasingly, borders are reproduced themselves through data. We often think about data as a privacy issue, or perhaps not us, but we see it discussed as a privacy issue, and we take for granted that data exists, and our arguments focus on how data is used and by whom. But a growing number of organizers and scholars, including those brilliant organizers and scholars that you're going to hear from today, are questioning data collection mechanisms at their root, data-fueled systems of wealth extraction, criminalization, and so much more in thinking about the racist colonial relationships that are embedded in technologies like algorithmic prediction, pattern recognition, and relationship mapping tools. So today we're going to discuss all of this and also how we organize resistance against the growing number of ways that data is used to reinforce and expand criminalization so I'm so excited to introduce you to a brilliant panel of thinkers and organizers and all of you who are joining us to be part of this conversation. I want to start with Puck. Puck, I want to invite you to start us off just by way of introduction. Puck, you work with the Community Justice Exchange, and you are the author of the report from Data Criminalization to Prison Abolition. Thank you to you and your team for this work. You've spent the last year deep in the rabbit hole of examining Department of Homeland Security's various data regimes. I wanted to ask if you can please share with us what was the impetus behind this project? And can you please explain to all of us what exactly is data criminalization and what do we need to understand about data criminalization in order to dismantle systems of migrant surveillance and criminalization? And for those who are participating and listening in, just so you know, for this first round, we're going to have a few rounds to try to ensure this is as interactive as possible. All the panelists will have about seven minutes to start. So Puck, over to you and thank you so much. 
Thank you so much, Harsha, and everyone who's here tonight. I am so beyond thrilled to get to have this conversation with you all. And I will try to talk slow, um, which, uh, bear with me. Okay. So I'm the researcher at Community Justice Exchange, CJE, and we work with organizers who build grassroots power by contesting different parts of the criminal, legal, and immigration deportation systems. We're working with organizers to get folks out of isolation and organizers pushing for an end to cooperation between police and DHS. We've encountered various technologies, systems, and reforms over the years. This project and report on data criminalization came out of our efforts to answer the questions, what is new, what is not, which should be thrown away forever. Since 2018, we've looked into algorithmic risk assessment tools being used at the pre-trial stage to recommend to judges whether to release someone on bail. We've opposed mandates by ICE that people getting paroled out of immigration detention be shackled with location tracking ANCO devices. Groups like Mijente and my co-panelist, Jacinta Gonzalez, were taking the lead on exposing some of the most egregious tech companies, like Palantir, who are building the data systems ICE uses, and Amazon, which hosts the information on its GovCloud. We wanted to understand the mechanics of ICE's digital stalking in order to come up with new kinds of demands and questions to organize against surveillance. So we decided to examine at the computer system level how ICE stalks people. Our suspicion was that the architecture of the data systems that facilitate and record ICE's surveillance, arrests, and deportations could tell a story revealing of the agency's priorities and weaknesses. We created this report and website to be a tool for organizers so that we can ask different questions together. We saw the limits of our shared knowledge and frameworks as an opportunity to change direction collectively. To those ends, we detail those monologues, how the state talks to itself, in our report and on our website, which includes write-ups of a dozen different data systems that DHS uses. The point was never to be comprehensive. DHS uses about 900 databases and they change over time. But to see what we might learn if, undistracted by rhetoric, we observe the structures do what they were built to do. And what, can we, what, and what we can see if we look is that DHS and other government and commercial surveillance systems are growing exponentially to include more and more people, overtly and covertly weaponizing extra-legal and historical data to surveil and restrict the lives of people within and beyond formally criminalized spaces. Data itself is an increasingly invasive, expansive parcel regime, separating the free from the unfree by regulating and restricting movements while reorganizing geographies for capital accumulation. Our conclusion after a year of looking deeply at data criminalization automated computerized systems, old and new, manual human systems, state and corporate run, fancy pattern recognition, mapping and predictive technologies is this. Data it is, as it is used today by states and by the market functions as a deterritorialized border, sorting us categorically and precluding or allowing life chances. The sorting can be intended and violent as we will see in Department of Homeland Security systems 
But the possibility mapping technology regimes in which we live our lives can exert historicized violence over us, even without, so to speak, intending to. An example, I was driving from Northern to Southern California last week. And even though at some earlier point in my journey, I intentionally chose a route on Google Maps to avoid a rural area where, terrifyingly, a young black man was lynched in 2020. The map had at some point rerouted after I shut off the app at a gas station. Hours later, shocked, I found myself driving through that particular valley, wondering how this had happened. Google Maps ostensibly used the criteria of less traffic and driving time to sort intended outcomes. This is different than the criteria I wanted to use, choosing a longer route that would allow me to feel safer as a brown person moving through potentially hostile space. So why name data criminalization? We solve problems based on the questions we ask. And as my fellow panelist, Sarah Hamid has said, we're too easily seduced into amnesia by new technologies. The point of naming data criminalization is to make visible and call out as illegitimate processes where data is created about a person in order to justify and ensure their ongoing criminalization. These processes utilize both old and new technologies, which is important to sit with because if we allow ourselves to fixate on the new, then we omit acknowledging all of the foundational violences that make possible the present. For example, if we're trying to create a campaign against facial recognition technology, for instance, we will likely target legislators that promote the use of facial recognition, companies that make this technology, or maybe try to pass ordinances and laws regulating or banning this technology. What we leave untouched there is capitalism as well as state power, the power to confer or deny life chances and freedom, maintain US hegemony and imperialist relations at the global level using death, theft and conquest to maintain the status quo. If on the other hand, we aim to unmake the legal and extra legal structural violences of data criminalization, we must name the state, private property, white supremacy, and anti-blackness, as well as the capitalist market as enemies. Reforms might look different. Instead of litigation to enforce privacy protections of high-tech consumers, we might fight for full expungement of all criminal legal records at the database level. Instead of fighting to reinstate the U.S.'s racist and bureaucratic asylum program, we might ask, as our moderator, Marsha Walia does, how to address borders as a global labor exploitation and race-making technology, and work to dismantle them as well as nation states. Riffing off my co-panelist, Khadija Abdurrahman, we might look to the digital as a site for abolition, a new way to get free. Part of the project, then, is to understand how criminalization and state power operate at the data level, as well as extra-legally and formally, so as to be able to exact its unmaking. We hope that the, the framework of data criminalization can destabilize the assumptions and categories that are imposed on us by the state. If data as we know it are the building blocks from which the state executes its world-making, how might we organize our resistance to unmake that world? All of this may seem overwhelming. When I feel stuck, I imagine about how people were trying to theorize capitalism and labor in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, while working 14-hour factory shifts, 
or theorize colonialism while fighting a guerrilla war. It may seem impossible to see outside of where we are, but like our predecessors, we must and we will do it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Puck, for that rapid fire summary of incredible work that you've been holding on for so long. Um, and also for leaving us on that note of, you know, the possibility of, of fighting and of liberation, because that is that is a necessity. Um, I wanted to invite Jacinta Gonzalez next, who, as Puck mentioned, has been we one of the many leaders in Miquente who have been leading the No Tech for ICE campaign. Jacinta is a senior campaign organizer with Miquente and leads their No Tech for ICE campaign. Previously, she worked at Poder in Mexico and was also the lead organizer for the New Orleans Workers' Center for Racial Justice Congress of day laborers. Jacinta, thank you so much for being here. I'm wondering if you can please give a brief description of some of the immense and incredible work that Mijente has been doing and how it relates to processes of data criminalization and surveillance. Sure, definitely. And thank you so much for, for the invitation and for the space to have this important conversation. Um, as was mentioned, I work as part of an organization called Mi Gente. Uh, for folks that might not know about Mi Gente, we are both a digital and grassroots hub for Latina and Chicana communities that are organizing for climate, economic, gender, and racial justice. And so, you know, at Mi Gente, we don't kind of have follow singular tactics or dogma. We don't think there's just one way of getting the goods for a community. We we really believe in el buen vivir, the, the dignified life for people. Um, and so sometimes that means doing electoral work. Sometimes that means taking to the streets and protesting government and officials. Sometimes that means policy. And sometimes that means creating our own alternatives and solutions for, for, for our communities. Um, but a lot of us at Mi Gente come out of the anti-deportation movement. And so, you know, we've we've had the 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 honor of being able to be in struggle with people since the Bush administration, under Obama, under Trump, now under Biden, and have really sort of seen the ways that tech and data companies, the way Silicon Valley has impacted the way immigration and the deportation systems work um, in the United States, but also how that's being used as a model that's being taken across the world in terms of how we're thinking about the militarization of borders and the policing systems that should be uh, that that governments are now thinking should be the solution for for global migration, particularly as we see um, you know political disruptions, economic instability, but also climate change. Um, and so for us, you know, I always joke, I can't even use Google Docs. I am not a technologist. I am very much not, um, you know, part of this world necessarily. But we started to get involved in this work because we saw that what was happening in the field was changing. Our members, our people in our community were asking us, how did I know my address? How did he know he was my cousin? How did they know what car I was driving? How did they know where I was going? Um, how did they know where I work? And so we had to actually figure those questions out ourselves because we didn't know. We knew that ICE was sketchy. We knew that they used a lot of power um, to try to, to control people's environment, to try to create a culture of fear that would actually shut down organizing. And so we knew that to be able to be well-equipped to go up in this next next round of fighting with, with DHS and ICE, that we actually had to have an understanding of who were their corporate partners and how was this private-public partnership working in a way to keep our communities 
um, in a state of fear, but also to, to, to make sure that deportation agents had as much control as they possibly could. So since about 2018, we've been doing research and organizing around this. Um, if folks go to the No Tech for ICE uh, website, notechforice.com, you'll be able to see a variety of reports and research that we've done. But the first big report we did was a report called Who's Behind ICE? The Tech and Data Companies Fueling Deportations. And that's where we kind of really understood that one, data companies were buying and selling information on our loved ones to be able to sell it to the police and to immigration authorities. That companies that did data analytics like Palantir were custom making software for ICE to process this information. That Amazon not only doesn't pay taxes, but they're actually making billions of dollars by providing cloud services to different policing agencies like ICE. And that also the biometrics industry was really booming. And that ankle shackles, geo-tracking, but also being able to use our DNA, our face, our iris to be able to identify people was growing more and more with, with policing. So for us, it hasn't just been about producing research, right? We're organizers. We believe in building power. And so that means we've been organizing with communities on the ground um, to be able to both protect and defend their loved ones and understand that technology is being used against them. We've been organizing with students that have been processing these companies, workers at some of these companies, investors. You know, we really think that this is a all hands on deck moment where we have to be organizing in a lot of different spaces and creative ways to be able to not only unveil what's happening, but also equip our people to be able to fight back and actually understand that that, that it's a growing it's a different terrain in which we're fighting in, but it's a deck it's a centuries old fight for liberation that we're a part of. And so both being able to take inspiration from from old battles while starting to look forward in terms of how um, the government is trying to to control our communities. And really, for folks who are unfamiliar with Mijente, please check them out. They're no tech for ICE work and, and all of their work. Thank you so much, Jacinta. I wanted to invite up Sarah Hamid next to please share with us. Sarah, if you can share with us about how your work relates to data criminalization and surveillance. Sarah is an abolitionist and organizer working in the Pacific Northwest, leading the police technology campaign at the Carceral Tech Resistance Network. Sarah has also co-founded the Inside Outside Research Collaboration, the Prison Tech Research Group, and helped create the Eight to Abolition campaign, which is such a vital intervention, particularly at the time that it came at. So Sarah, thank you so much for your work and for being here with us today and over to you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute honor. I'm a little bit starstruck by the panel, so forgive me. Um, so to speak a little bit about CTRN's work, um, we're a coalition of organizers that are campaigning against the design, experimentation, and rollout of technologies by prisons, um, police, and border enforcement, and commercial partnerships. Our group is primarily made up of femme, Black, immigrant, and non-Black racialized organizers, most of whom are systems impacted, some of whom are incarcerated. My own work is primarily embedded in Portland, Oregon, but CTRN has organizers in most West Coast U.S. cities. Um, and I'm gonna slow down for y'all. I'm sorry, I'm going a little fast as I do when I'm nervous, many apologies. Um, a lot of us began our work campaigning against specific technologies that are really familiar now in part because of this history of organizing, 
for instance, um, against the first round of place and person-based uh, risk assessment technologies and predictive policing programs that were rolled out into major municipalities because of the 2009 grant injection by the NIJ. So in 2018, the network came into formation out of a realization that technologies that are often rolled out at a local scale, they have afterlives. They travel to other communities and other contexts where there may be less of an organizing base or a familiarity with how to contend with them and to how to dismantle them. So I began my own work um, organizing at the city scale, and that makes a lot of sense for a lot of folks who begin this kind of campaigning, because as James Boggs tells us, city is the black man's land, right? So then I started to um, work on campaigns against predictive policing at a particular city and also gang databases used by particular cities and quickly came to the realization that sometimes you can dismantle a local instantiation of a technology in one direction, in one jurisdiction, rather only to learn that it was taken up whole cloth by an with absolutely no critical reflection with another, by another um, jurisdiction or another policing entity. Um, so, and we're seeing this a lot as um, we're witnessing cities um, that are experiencing an absorption of communities that have been pushed out of municipalities because of gentrification. Um, whole cloth doing things like scraping gang databases that have been dismantled elsewhere and using them for pernicious reasons. So the um, network came together because of a realization that we needed to knowledge share, foster mentorship between different community organizations, and to build organization and community at different scales and geographies, because the field or the terrain that we were contesting in had completely changed. CTRN's work aims um, targets the pig and its or the prison industrial complex, sorry, and its technological infrastructure, everything from predictive policing to risk assessment algorithms to robot dogs being deployed at the border right now to hunt down folks. Um, and the types of campaigns that organizers roll out at the local or municipal level include things like organizing at schools um, or with amongst tech workers and trying to interrupt things like the tech pipeline that absorbs students who get conscripted into creating these violent weapons without even realizing that they're doing so. We also target vendors. This includes consumer-facing campaigns as well as shareholders. Um, our work brings us in content contact with local city officials a lot, where many of us watch the contracts and procurements that cities take on um, often and critically and advocate for divestment from violent tech industries and try to leverage city governments to enact prohibitions on this kind of violent profiteering. The example here is Portland's ban on um, private and government use of facial recognition technology in public spaces. Um, we'll also roll out popular education campaigns that expose the harms of technologies that are often marketed as scientific or neutral for bureaucracies. Um, and lastly, and this is what I see as our most important work, is that we try to think through and experiment with new models of technology and what community-owned technology can look like or community-owned data infrastructure could look like. And alternatively, what non-technological or punitive solutions to the problems that our communities could face can look like. Um, our work is at its core knowledge building, and the knowledge is not just about building databases that name vendors. Um, or it's most crucially building political theory and a working knowledge of resistance um, 
in this context. And so this is forward facing, but it's also historic or going through archives. Um, the problems of technology are often presented to us as new and newly urgent, even in movement spaces. But that urgency, I think, comes in part from the industry hype itself, because a lot um, along the way, a lot of the knowledge that movement organizers had built up has been repressed and suppressed through carceral technologies, no less. So the knowledge here is also a recovery to understand how movements for liberation, like the Black Panthers or the American Indian movement, who were particularly active in a moment of ex computational experimentation that resembles our own right in the 1970s during deindustrialization, how they built a concept of technology and a relationship with to computing that in, was informed by their own struggles for liberation. Um, the problems that technologies work on, like sphere packing, these are really abstract problems, sometimes are referred to as their inheritance, right? They get them from their advisors who got those same problems from their advisors. So we conceptualize this knowledge recovery as our inheritance, as folks struggling for our own liberation and the liberation for our communities. And we're building a relationship to that ancestry that's been denied to us because of the violence of the state and state repression. And I think that adequately summarizes it. Thank you. If you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Angela Davis, an autobiography. Featuring a substantial new introduction by the author, Angela Davis, an autobiography, is a classic account of a life in struggle. Angela Davis has been a political activist at the cutting edge of the black liberation, feminist, queer, and prison abolitionist movements for more than 50 years. First published and edited by Toni Morrison in 1974, Angela Davis, an autobiography, is a powerful and commanding account of her early years of political activity. With warmth, brilliance, humor, and conviction, Davis describes her journey from a childhood on Dynamite Hill in Birmingham, Alabama, to one of the most significant political trials of the century. From her political activity in a New York high school, to her work with the U.S. Communist Party, the Black Panther Party, and the Soledad Brothers, and from the faculty of the Philosophy Department at UCLA, to the FBI's list of the 10 most wanted fugitives. Find Angela Davis, an autobiography at haymarketbooks.org. Thank you so much, Sarah, for that. And uh, I just wanted to, to echo your comments about being starstruck. All of you did such vital and incredible work. Um, and thank you all. It's such a, a privilege and an honor to be here alongside. And Sarah, one thing that you mentioned that, that stands out, um, that stood out to me is, you know, the ways in which technology travels, right? And how jurisdictions pick up technological criminalization. And I wanted to invite Khadija Abdurrahman into the conversation next, because Khadija, your work is really transnational in scope and looking at the ways in which uh, predictive analytics and the US child welfare system and the Horn of Africa are operating. Khadija is an abolitionist and they are the founder of We Be Imagining, drawing on the black radical tradition to develop public technology through infusing academic discourse with the performance arts in partnership with community-based organizations. Khadija, over to you, if you could tell us more about your work and how it relates to data criminalization and surveillance. Thank you. 
Thank you so much. I'm going to try to be concise so that I can also speak solely and say all the points. Um, but I will say that um, the New York City Administration for Children's Services, uh, or ACS, came into my life about a decade ago. They strip searched my kids. They treated us like garbage. They threatened um, to separate us at every chance. And at that point, I had very little power to do anything about it. Um, and simultaneously, I had um, learned about Virginia Eubanks automating any quality and was learning about how this uh, pre-existing form of family surveillance and separation that was already existing was being brought to scale um, and, and at that time in Allegheny, Pennsylvania, uh, and then later on into uh, the United States. Uh, but that's really where I am oriented to, oriented to in terms of my community organizing around uh, hashtag abolish NYC ACS. Uh, some cops are called caseworkers as well as we be imagining. It's just I know that we need resources that are up here in the academy. And I think reading and scholarship is really important. And this stuff is like rigid, right? Like all of these words are basically like, how can we recreate like a lot of the, the forms of knowledge production that we know in our community, maybe not always within the universe but like at least dragging the resources out of the university, whether that's in terms of um, refugees fleeing, you know, Tigray or Amia, or whether that's people just trying to get out the welfare office. And sorry, this is the part where I will go slow. Um, so I tend to speak very fast. And part of that is my temperament, a combination of ADHD translated into IRL interaction. And part of that is the weather. This need to rush, optimize for time as anti-blackness. I want to speak and articulate some of the ideas slowly so we don't rush past the specifics and intention underneath each word and concept. There's also something about how digital surveillance instantiates a permanent regiment of time that I want to speak against, even as the irony is I'm here on this platform under the camera, which is barely distinguishable from the CCTV we name as central to surveillance. So uh, with the time that we have, I'm just going to give uh, a few a few thoughts from the themes coming from my paper, calculating the souls of black folk, predictive analytics in the New York City Administration for Children's Services, which is available open access on Columbia Law Journal. Um, so I think there's a lot of confusion about what data is, what data does, and whether these are even the right questions to ask. I try to examine what exactly do we mean by surveillance. I worry that the Foucauldian notion of the panopticon and specifically sight overdetermines our understanding of these technologies. For example, ACS and the family regulation system more broadly don't use uh, security cameras, although of course there's other forms of watching, like in the form of caseworker home visits, but how can we listen to these technologies and think about how it changes the rhythm of our collective life? Is there anything as fundamentally anti-Black as a series of techniques and tools that bring us into our own destruction of rhythm and time? Data operates on two registers. One is an entering dynamic human existence into the abstraction of classification, like in the Book of Negroes, which Simone Brown highlights in Dark Matters. We're entered into the ledger, light brown skin, loose curls, troublemaker, right? Transatlantic slavery brought into the cloud. Again, the prescience of Christina Sharp's notion of the weather. The second register is data doesn't just exist. Like a child, it cannot give birth to itself. It requires a brick and mortar infrastructure. 
It remakes space and requires a geography of data centers, legislation, and policies that govern its use, and is iteratively modified based on the sets of beliefs and practices that form the technoculture around it. In my work, I try to resist easy phrases like black and brown that violently universalize the differentiated experience of non-white peoples in relationship to social services or relatedly commonly repeated tropes like neglect is a proxy for poverty, therefore families need support, not surveillance. There's truths to be found in these phrases, but it elides how, for example, Chinese-American families in New York City have a higher rate of poverty as compared to Black families, yet experience minimal rates of investigation or community-based surveillance in the form of prevention services. I think internationalism, cross-racial solidarity is very important, and it requires this level of specificity and co-understanding. How are we doing on time? Good? Okay. Okay. Uh, So in automating inequality, Eubanks examines public sector adoption of automated decision systems in three contexts, coordinated housing entry in L.A., Medicaid in Indiana, and Child Protective Services in Allegheny, Pennsylvania. The book is rightfully lauded for demanding our attention to how automation in the backdrop of austerity exacerbates harm already experienced by poor people. However, the title, Automating Inequality, I worry draws attention to the dirty data problem to the exclusion of her most important insight. The dirty data problem is a problem, no doubt. Garbage data sets fed into machine learning models produce a positive feedback loop. For example, caseworkers are directed to the same neighborhoods that have already been over-policed because that's who's represented in the data, also collected by the police. However, what I feel is central to Eubanks' book and what I draw heavily from and how I conceptualize the issues with automated decision systems or algorithms in my work is the idea of the digital poorhouse. This is not a metaphor. A digital poorhouse is a layered web of digital infrastructure transmitting petabytes of personal data through data centers which input to typically proprietary machine learning models. Eubanks asks us to compare the digital poorhouse to the brick and mortar poorhouses of the early 20th century in the US. These eugenic institutions stripped Eastern European immigrants of their rights as white citizens, including the right to vote, to care for their children, etc. They were not idyllic sites of compassion. And in fact, here is where we find the origin of the word caseworker. A caseworker is called such because they were like a cop assigned to investigate a case of a poor person's worthiness of aid. But in these brick and mortar poorhouses, people of all different backgrounds were geographically co-located. They organized together and fought for all types of political projects from labor organizing or to reunite with their children. In the digital poorhouse, classification sorts and moves people through space, preempting that geographic co-location, preempting organizing possibilities. Uh, The last point that I just want to make is that In Dorothy Roberts' review of Automating Inequalities by Eubanks, she argues that she attends to race. She states that racism is central to the carceral state's reliance on prediction. There's one way we could read this argument, which is to say prediction and classification are used by the state to criminalize people, whether at the border or at the welfare office. This, I think, is true. But another way to read this is that classification and prediction are modes of governance. 
through through classification, a state can manage populations over time at scale. And as Catherine McKittrick reminds us, whiteness imposes a hierarchy onto the world. But what if we thought about classification as the origin story of criminalization? That criminalization, rather than simply using data collection to incarcerate, what if we think about it as an extension of classification? What if we understood that the very idea of these modes of classification begins with contact with the new world in 1492? Um, Again, let's slow down. When we say such and such technology is carceral, is carceral modifying what is otherwise a liberatory implied neutral technology? Uh, I, I ask these questions because tech is not just something out there looking at us. It is an extension of both the state and us. In order to abolish prisons or to move beyond various entanglements of abandonment and state violence that characterize the present, we must recognize and dismantle the way classification is central to the current world order. Phew. Khadija, thank you so much for that. Um, Thank you. Really sitting with, and I hope we're all thinking through what you've just laid out in terms of criminalization as an extension of classification and classification itself as the central mode of governance that we need to be thinking through and dismantling and the call for specificity, especially anti-Black racism and anti-Blackness and forging these solidarities. Thank you so much for for laying that out. And in seven minutes, um, time, (laughs) the pressures of time. Um, Thank you all so much. I wanted to invite us into another round of of conversation and then hopefully another round, which is uh, a little bit more interactive and allows each of us to engage. But for now, I wanted to follow up on some specific questions for for all of you trying to draw on some threads that we've been talking about as much as possible. But please, you know, take this in in whatever direction um, each of you is as I um, put these forward. I'll start again in in that order. Puck, um, one of the lines in in the report and on the website for this report really stand out. And, you know, that is that surveillance is real-time social control. And here perhaps drawing on, on what Khadija just talked about um, and if we think about, you know, data analysis and prediction, for many of us may seem overly sci-fi and technological, as Jacinta joked about, you know, not knowing how Google Docs works, barely, that's me. Um, but, you know, all these kind of jokes aside, Puck, as you critically note, and Sarah, you've talked about, and Khadija, you've talked about, you know, this is a continuation of longstanding historical and contemporary processes of racial and national profiling, of classification, of management, control, and more. Um, Two particular processes in the report, Puck, are of automated data criminalization. One is arrest and booking. The second is traveler surveillance and criminalization. From an abolitionist perspective, what can we learn from having an understanding of how these specific processes actually work? What can you tell us about them? Talk about not being in control of technology. But um, yeah, so I guess first off is that I was just so influenced and inspired by Simone Brown's work on so much of this history. Um, And I read it back to back with surveillance capitalism, which made me ask a lot of questions about how the apparatuses that were so described in Shoshana Zuboff's um, tome really um, would apply to the people that I love in the world who are denied legal rights um, or access to them often. And so, Yeah, so looking at um, the kind of triangulation and the arrest booking um, 
fingerprint match system was was the starting point of that investigation mostly because like as a person in my 20s i remember when escom was rolling out i remember trying to understand that um trying to understand what detainers even were and just trying to figure out how that fit into what we can know about now um and what surprised me at looking at that database level again was what I didn't even know, even though I had been paying attention. And so, um, first of all, that surveillance protections applied very little um, protection to people. And it was really at that sort of funnel point between the jail and an ICE officer. But there were so much mechanics that were so much larger than that point of contact that was already systematically trolling trolling people if they were not born in the U.S. That was the determining factor that these machines use. And so just learning that uh, made so much sense because it was like very validating on the human level to be like, oh yes, everything that we see and experience is, this is real. And these are the actual ways that we're being sorted and profiled and categorized and punished and um, sorted through space. And so, so that felt like an important thing to revisit um, along with the question why does DHS do this, right? Like over the successive presidential administrations, we've heard different kinds of rhetoric, everything from the neoliberal um, version of, you know, only the criminals are getting caught and sent home to, you know, obviously the, everyone is a criminal who is an immigrant. And so, I think we have a lot to learn in looking at those systems and how they work, um, what remains constant, what, this, what the through line of U.S. border mechanics are. And because I don't want to take a day, um, just to answer your question about traveler surveillance, that felt like a really interesting cautionary tale for us to look at now because while travel and international travel, domestic travel was not illegal, we obviously experience very overt moments of securitization and unfreedom when we are traveling. And while there is a narrative that is not untrue that this was built up after 9-11, what we can see if we look at traveler surveillance is that the computerization and automation of surveillance of travelers really begins in the 90s and the 80s. So this far predates the war on terrorism and sets us up, in fact, for the execution of those kinds of policies. Um, yeah, but I'll, I'll stop there so that other people can have a chance to talk. Thanks, Puck. Jacinta, I wanted to ask you a question in light of your description of a lot of the groundbreaking work that Mijente has been doing for years and the many tactics that you all have used, including on the ground organizing, building analysis about tech surveillance and DHS, all the base building that you talked about and the diverse coalitions, and really making the connections and leading in this work on surveillance and technology and the ways in which it's aided migrant prosecutions and deportations. 
Um, one interesting thread that I wanted to pick up on was you talked about um, briefly, and I know you've talked about this more in other places, is how Mi Gente has been organizing tech workers or potential tech workers. I'm asking if wanted to ask if you can expand on your analysis and your work on labor, tech, and surveillance and the organizing that you've done um, as Mi Gente, and how does it fit into your and Mi Gente's broader analysis of ending detention and deportation? Sure. Um, in like two minutes, right? <laughs> um, five minutes, five minutes. Okay, cool. Five minutes. Um, you know, I think we've really, we, we just recently launched a, a kind of a digital course on our, um, education platform called it, uh, called El Instituto called Tech Wars. We kind of use this metaphor of like the Star Wars theme to one, make it, you know, fun and get people engaged and have people having these conversations, but also to really kind of like go into the metaphor of like, sometimes it just feels like the tech industry is so big and so huge and what's happening with the data economy, what's happening with surveillance, what's happening with the growing power of policing. It just feels like you're kind of in this impossible battle. So I think part of our challenge and part of our job as organizers is to really kind of break this up into bite-sized pieces where people can really feel like they can jump in, plug in, you know, organize, take some really brave steps and have an impact. And so when we launched this uh, campaign, it was right around the moment where you started to see a lot of workers in different companies um, in Silicon Valley taking a stand against what ICE was doing, particularly because it was under the Trump administration. And so for us, it was important to be able to support that organizing, to be able to continue to, to amplify it. But I think what we realized is that it's not only about tech workers who are at companies, but also about the, the talent pipeline, right? Um, that there are so many students on different campuses that were ready to plug in and ready to connect with different grassroots organizations to understand how they could be strengthening each other's organizing. And so I give this example because, for example, in Georgia, you had students from Georgia Tech working with the Georgia Latino Alliance for Human Rights to do workshops to be able to get people to say no to people who are being recruited on their campus, but also do workshops for community members who are being targeted by the same technology. Um, and this became really powerful because, you know, I always make the joke, but Palantir has never asked for a meeting with me. They never want to talk to me. I don't know why. But suddenly when there's students doing protests on a campus, they immediately try to contact them and they actually want to engage. And this to us signaled pretty early on that potential tech workers, right, or, or future tech workers had a lot of power and that the, the profile, right, the image, the brand, of these companies depended a lot on people wanting to work for them and how academia was viewing them. So pretty early on in the campaign, for example, we got the Privacy Law and Scholars Conference to draw Palantir as a sponsor. And that was because of both academics organizing, but also students organizing because they were getting pressure from community organizations that were calling them out for having Palantir as a sponsor of their event to begin with. And that kind of had a domino effect. So for us, a lot of this is about, again, lifting up each other's voices to know how all of this is connected. And, you know, I think 
four or five years ago, if you got an internship, if you were to Stanford and you had an internship at Palantir, that was considered super prestigious. I think the conversation among students is very different now. And so I think that those are some of the markers where we can start to see that there can be a, a growing movement that has a different consciousness about how we're thinking about these companies and, and the role that they should play. But it's not, you know, I, I, it's still hard. It's still an uphill battle. You know, we've worked with communities that, you know, are facing deportation. I've worked with communities that are, you know, facing mining companies in, in rural locations and, and are facing life or death situations. And the chilling effect that I've seen in those communities versus also some of these big tech companies is huge, right? They have a lot of really... Um, I'm not sure we're allowed to swear, but I'll say fake, fake democracy processes within these companies, right, where they'll have assemblies or town halls or listen to sign on letters. But really, at the end of the day, the CEO or the directors are making the decisions and squashing the organizing that's happening below. So I think until we see more um, direct organizing happening in these companies, we'll be able to see some of these programs actually shut down. At the same time, we've also been able to block it, right, and make it harder and make it more difficult. And so I think there's places where you can see some advancements while you still see that there's kind of room to grow and, and work to be done. Thank you for that. That's so inspiring. And to, you know, think about how we build, how we build collective power and that we, you know, actually think about strategy and tactics and how we dismantle it and, um, and really shift power too, right? So thank you for that. Um, Sarah, I wanted to ask you a question in a, a similar vein. You were, you know, as an organizer with Carceral Tech Resistance Network, you were talking about how so much of the work is about uh, producing knowledge and sharing knowledge and also the challenges of organizing against policing technologies and all these multiple spaces and localities and across jurisdiction. Um, can you talk more about that context, that, that kind of broader context of, you know, how do we move beyond targeting individual technologies or vendors, you know, that that's part of it, but we also need to move beyond that. And how do we make abolitionist demands against so-called, you know, data-driven solutions or techno-solutionist solutions, which we know aren't actually neutral um, in our responses to dismantling state violence? Yeah, it's a huge question, but I think one of the places to start is how we articulate the problems to ourselves, how we identify what the issue is here. Um, I think that a lot of attention has been like by both media and scholarly attention, a lot of focus has been on trying to identify surveillance and uh, carceral practices as a moral failing, as opposed to um, an analytic that I think, uh, by the way, absolutely obsessed with border and rule, but the analytic of looking at it as a regime of governance and trying to understand what it means for these technologies to function that way. So it's not just surveillance as an aberration or technological violence as an aberration, but as an ordering principle for how we understand and live our lives. Um, there's all of this attention like that tries to make the case that technologies aren't neutral or they're biased. And they do this by articulating quote unquote edge cases, right? And oftentimes folks from vulnerableized communities start to feel their lives being turned into case studies and this like moral posturing. Um, but at the end of the day, this idea that tech is not neutral and all of this focus on this argument is just another way to preserve white innocence, just like torturously focus on this preservation of white innocence. Whereas 
folks whose communities have been not only like affected by carceral technologies, but have been the source of innovation and data and like just like access to the ways in which the state has cataloged our lives and managed our lives. That longstanding, I think, history informs a different relationship to technology where the present moment that we're living in, this emergent, so quote unquote, surveillance capitalism is not new. And not only is it not new, what it signals is that a very particular political configuration won, right? They achieved exactly what they had said that they wanted to do. They deliberately imbued these technical systems with intent, and it's doing the work that it was supposed to be doing. And I think recognizing that is the first place to start, right? In a lot of these different organizing contexts, we get caught in these double binds. Uh, the one of the most ironic is that um, we're we're consistently having to use computers to make the case for things, like for instance, climate modeling. Like we're having to articulate. Um, climate catastrophe through computational systems. Like I'm Bangladeshi. I like came into this world a climate refugee because of river erosion, right? This is not something that I need a computer to articulate, but we have to do this. But at the same time in Northern Oregon, Google is setting up data centers and they refuse to like they're they are basically using up all of the community's groundwater. And we have no way of enacting climate models without using Google's compute power. But at the same time, they're the ones that are pushing us into the brink of ecological collapse, right? So pulling out of the present, I think, and rooting ourselves in prior concepts of sovereignty and the history that brought us to this present, I think is incredibly important. And so articulating what's going on in terms of what is absolutely a racializing order enacted through political technologies that could only happen because of mass amounts of organizing on behalf of particular political neoliberal interests and beginning there, as opposed to, I wonder if the tech is biased, I think is the like absolutely paramount right now. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sarah, for that. And, you know, really reminding us to, to recognize that surveillance is not an aberration, right? And Khadija, you again talking about classification as itself a mode of governance. Um, I wanted to ask you, Khadija, you know, in, in naming these continuities of violence as all of you have, you know, racialized ordering of data surveillance as an extension of these continuities of violence of imperialism, enslavement, empire, and more, what are the ways in which we can think through these extensions, especially transnationally? Um, and you research, Khadija, you know, the role of tech in mass atrocities and, you know, supposed humanitarian assistance in the Horn of Africa, for example. And you have noted that the UN Refugee Agency is the largest multinational biometric program. Can you tell us what you think the implications of this are and how might, how might we organize against data criminalization if we reject this kind of legibility and inclusion by the state, by capitalism, and all these forms of imperialism, including imperial humanitarianism? What are the broader implications of this system of racialization and classification? Thank you. Thank you so much for that. I did want to just step back for one second to share a, a, a comment and something to an, uh, something earlier someone said, which is that I think a lot 
with uh, Ben Tarnoff, who's one of the co-founders of Logic Magazine, because like, you know, I'm always complaining, right? And I'm like, you know, this tech journalism is trash. And they often remind me that tech journalism started off as product review, right? In the early aughts. And now we have this transition to like critiquing techno-solutionalism, techno-solutionism, which has become more the norm. But then the question is, what do we actually diagnose as the problem? And so the normative framework within technically trained critical spaces is fairness, accountability, transparency, which is unduly limiting for all of the reasons that Sarah already named. And so I'm not going to reproduce that. But I want to say that, you know, there is a specificity to what's happening in tech. And as a field, it is terrible at science communication, which is one of the reasons I think surveillance capitalism and Shoshana Zuboff's work had such a huge impact because that phrasing gave a kind of clarity to people um, that I think, you know, to make it something tangible besides all of these diagrams and data distribution that is confusing to people. However, Zuboff was definitely like not surveillance capitalism. Let's get back to that other capitalism, which is good, um, among other issues. And there's many people who have written about it, but I just wanted to make sure that I that that I flagged that. Um, and I also wanted to flag something about the data criminalization reports. Um, it acknowledges how organizers focused on ankle monitors for a decade and now are noticing that that particular mode of incarceration and surveillance is becoming outdated, right? The ankle monitor, the NYPD terminator looking robot uh, dog, the border drones are other types of spectacular instances of technology tend to capture our imagination, but it is still the ledger reborn into Microsoft Excel sheets, which continues to capture, predict, and settle the future. There's also a parallel here with, uh, with people doing prison industrial complex work or family regulation system work being drawn by the spe spectacular when we know that the model encounter with child services is not removal and separation, just like the model encounter with the criminal justice system and ICE is not necessarily imprisonment. The vast majority of people who come in contact with these systems are enrolled into other murkier forms of prevention or alternate to incarceration, which dovetail with predictive analytics. And I just want to hold that because one that's like very important. We notice like this this huge expansion of these data collection systems and predictive risk modelings right at this moment where the model encounter with these carceral systems is also shifting, right? And then what is this thing? When we say prediction, what is happening? And I think, again, just two, two thoughts on that is prediction is a practice which draws on classification as a legitimate interpretation of the world. Prediction is an insistence on settling the future, our cartography for pioneers. For those of us who are invested in liberation, particularly but not only black liberation, we often conceive of liberation as residing in a time that is possible but hasn't yet arrived. We ought, we ought to notice this latest iteration of settling and selling the future. And this last point, I'm indebted to Walcott's uh, beautifully written book, The Long Emancipation, even as I have some differences re Rastafarianism. Prediction is also doing something here. It is important not to get lost in conversations about inaccuracy. Of course, systems that we're only interested in killing or extracting from us have poor archives, but we also should not get lost here. In IBM and the Holocaust, Edwin Black emphasizes that the machine gave the Third Reich the ability to identify and compute Jewish identity at scale, even in the context of assimilation. 
It doesn't mean that the Holocaust would not have happened, but it allowed it to bring it to scale. And so we must take care to notice closely how digital technologies augment already existing forms of social control and not be uh, distracted by their most spectacular instance. Um, doesn't fully answer your question about the transnational connections, um, but I will say, you know, this is something that I definitely look at in the context of UNICEF because the Allegheny Family Screening Tool has now been, been reborn as a Hello Baby and as a UNICEF case study for their AI uh, policy report. Um, but after having a very long conversation with someone at the UN, it was really clarifying uh, because while technosolutionism in journalism is now being critiqued within the UN, it's like uh, a free for all. And so they're partnering with Google, they're partnering with Amazon, they're partnering with Facebook. They openly uh, discuss in their reports that they're experimenting and piloting new systems on children. So what the person at UNICEF was clarifying for me was that this policy report did not shape implementation whatsoever, but it was more an internal organizational attempt to draw a line in the sand and to demand accountability. What actually does shape implementation is conditional funding. And so when UNICEF is funding, say, a new school in you know, rural uh, Kenya, Nairobi or something, uh, then in, as a condition of that funding, they might mandate electronic, mo uh, electronic monitoring of the classroom, another form of surveillance. Or maybe, you know, because there is war and genocide in Tigray, they'll say there's humanitarian cash assistance. But it's conditional on, say, school enrollment or some other kind of data point, right? And then deploy algorithms that are, have never been tested onto that population and make it conditional for them to receive that kind of form of cash assistance. So that's just an example of one of the ways uh, that it, 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 it manifests internationally, to answer your question. Thank you so much. Huck, Jacinta, Sarah, Khadija, thank you all so much for your brilliant insights and for really helping us unravel. Well, first to understand data criminalization and also to unravel its various threads and to locate it in its continuities of many forms of violence, right? And to, to make sure that we all understand that it's, it's not this kind of separate segment that we need to be thinking through, but really the ways in which it is a symptom of, a symptom of so many other forms of, of social control. Um, as we come towards the end, not quite yet, but nearing the end, I really wanted to invite all of you to make any further comments, to, to think alongside each other. I know I've had the privilege of asking all the questions so far, but really any comments you want to, to make in response to each other, any other comments you want to make um, about things that each of you have said. And, you know, maybe if I can pull apart or tease out two more threads that I think are so crucial and to continue with them because we haven't had enough time and I would love to keep hearing from all of you, but um, I'll just throw these out there, but really take it whichever direction you'd like, uh, which is, you know, just more insights that you want to share with us about how we understand data criminalization through these continuities of violence, right? Of enslavement, imperialism, settler colonialism, racial capitalism, and more. How do we, how does that understanding help us towards the abolitionist perspectives of dismantling data criminalization if we understand it as a symptom uh, and not it's, you know, a, a symptom of a, a much bigger problem. And also what strategies and tactics do we deploy as organizers in fighting this? What, what ways do we need to orient ourselves if we know it's not techno-solutionism as you all have talked about? So how do we keep building in the ways that, you know, for example, Mijente and Sarah, you've talked about that you all are organizing around. So 
you know, take those questions if you will, but really just an invitation to make further comments about what any of you have talked about. I wanted to open up the floor to all of you. I don't know if we need an order puck if you want to start and we can continue down in, a, in that format. You're muted, Puck. You're throwing up your hands, but we cannot hear you. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. Well, I had the supreme pleasure and honor to get to invite you all. So I also had the pleasure of reading and getting familiar with some of your work. Um, and I think the thread that's hanging right now over my head is this idea of like, what is data for and how it is a regime that shapes our realities. And I'm, I'm thinking of a, um, a presentation I saw you on, Sarah, where you were describing something you referenced earlier with the Black Panther Party archives. But um, you made this observation that back in the 70s, unconstrained by the sort of rhetoric we now know from the tech marketing industry, um, people were able to observe these predictive practices, these CAD programs in their infancy, in their experimental phase, and say, notice the sort of disjuncture between the entire point of policing as terrorism is an element of randomness in, in the violence that is inflicted on, on collective bodies. And so what is this thing that purports to be more directed? Um, and I think that there's tons of interesting work out there, including the Stop LAPD spying report on banishment, um, showing how data is used as a border to create enclosures that are safe for gentrification. Um, and so I guess I just, I would love to just hear everyone's thoughts, I guess, maybe maybe Sarah, since I picked you first, but on, on more of that, like how we might learn to see the same problem differently and how we have maybe in different times. So um, I, I just finished Border and Rule like three days ago and I like my, my partner will just, just like shut up because I just keep talking about it. And like, so I'm going to do this for a few seconds. I hope everyone can just forgive me. Um, but one of the things that that book did for me, so um, I don't, I didn't have an expertise or knowledge necessarily of the field, but one of the things that book did for me was um, forced me to realize that categories of political identity that I had been leaning on were now obsolete because the way in which things like the border was functioning and how it was functioning between countries who are now exported to manage the border of another country, of another country, of another country. I think that like fragmentation, that geographic fragmentation Khadija was talking about and recognizing that we literally needed new vocabulary or political ontology to understand ourselves in relation to each other because the way in which these computational systems have been distributed and the way in which these computational systems have come to govern everything from the violent spectacles to the absolutely mundane elements of our lives, right, um, has, has created a completely new terrain. And so I think that 
articulating what that political ontology is. Like that's our work. Um, Oftentimes I feel like because of who I am or who folks I'm in community with, like when, when we're asked to respond to a situation, we're supposed to have the political theory like that. Like I'm some, somehow like I'm just born with it. Like I just know this, this is just who I am. Right. And I I don't think that that's how that works. I think this is going to require a lot of collected study. I think this is going to require a lot of intentional effort for us to articulate what this political ontology is, because One thing is evidently clear, it's abundantly clear, is that the vocabularies available to us are insufficient, right? If we don't even understand citizenship, we don't even understand our relationship to how we are bordering simply by moving between like just different geographic, if we don't even understand concepts like that, I'm not sure how we're going to get over those impasses that Katisha was pointing to. Because yeah, like the terrain at which we collectivize, right? Like all of that has shifted and, and it's been done, uh, you know, like um, I, was, I was like musing on the fact that like in the 90s or in the early 2000s, everyone was like, use the Internet. It's going to give you community. Find other brown people on the Internet without ever acknowledging like this is the reason why we don't have community. Right. Like this industry dispersed us. It broke us. It forced us out of countries. That's why we don't have community. And now we're supposed to use this thing to find community. Right. Like, so I think that that work is just absolutely vital. And that's the work that I'm most interested in right now doing with folks in community is that political theory building. You gave me so many ideas and I also wanted to follow up on the internationalist uh, uh, connection is that one, you know, I think this is even mentioned in the data criminalization report, but like canonical archetype of someone who's concerned about surveillance is like the paranoid person who's like checking through their blinds. And like the only control that we have is to watch the watchers in this very like unhealthy, toxic sense. Um, And as someone who feels like deeply engaged around technologies, I'm both not paranoid and I'm actually deeply optimistic. I mean, there's questions about time, but the other point is that a lot of these things are not inevitable, as Sarah mentioned. Like, what is AI? Part of it is like this very basic algorithm that got bought up by corporate tech companies who realize they could sell it into this way bigger thing. You know, they might come up with these softwares and it's not just about what they think it can do, but they have to then interact with institutions and communities and bureaucracies and laws and frictions and and ecological disasters. Like they don't just have unlimited power and agency over to the world. Like there's so many points of like entry for us. And I think it will take a lot of collective study. And I just wanted to say shout out to my friend, my colleague, Sucheta Gosho, um, because we had been arguing about this for the last couple of years. And then she became a professor at UW and she was like, yo, I got to start a fund. Let's create the otherwise school um, tools and techniques of counterfascism, looking at Tigray, Aramia, which are two regions of Ethiopia, um, the black U.S. South and India. And the idea was to bring 20 people globally. It was virtual, both because of COVID, but also impossible for everyone's visa situation, including because these are were mostly not academics, I mean, but literally people who had just fled a war zone. Um, but thinking, what is it, how do we create a model of collective learning that bridges both having the deep political context and the deep political context around tech? And it's not easy. You know, we have to take these kind of risks because there's a reason these things don't happen, right? People are miscuing each other. You know, for some people, they like 
literally never met another black person until this, never learned anything about black history except Martin Luther King, you know, because they were in, you know, a rural section of India. You know, there's a lot of reasons why we don't know each other. And to create that space where also it wasn't publicly recorded, you know, like creating information as a set of relationships, right? And learning that wasn't just passive in the terms of like, I love reading, I love watching webinars, I love participating in panels and events like this, but also develop developing actual like prototypes of like, what does it mean to intervene around the X, Y, Z question in your context? And I think that these kind of para-institutional models, whether it's a struggle and study that I see Haymarket doing, or Mijente, I saw that you guys just dropped like a new, um, like whole Coursero educational platform about um, tech abolition and justice. And so I, I think like initiatives like these are extremely, extremely important because like change is possible. Like I'm not just in it to win it and like to do these kind of events. Like I do think that there are points of intervention. We have to be very specific about strategy, about like, you know, challenging people around anti-blackness, all of these things. But I do think that a lot is possible and we can make these internationalist connections without reifying the idea of the nation state or without leaning into easy analogies that kind of gloss over and like flatten the difference between caste in India and the experience of black people in America. We don't have to do that, but getting that Getting that additional historical context takes work, particularly for Americans of all races who are often very resistant. Um, you know, part of American exceptionalism is I think it, it like hails us into our own participation of refusing to learn other contexts. And so I, all to say that I think that these kind of new models of it, learning are, are going to be very important. And I'm really excited to collaborating with you guys after this. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like I don't have much to add given all of the the brilliance and things that folks have have been putting out. I would, I mean, to me, I think the one thing I guess I would kind of put out is that to me, like the abolitionist frame, why it's so important and why those values are so important right now is because we're on we're in a moment where there's an on the ground struggle between seeing these technologies as a safer alternative, et cetera, that folks actually don't have the analysis, but also the vocabulary and also the organizing like tactics to figure out how to fight back. And so we're at this like crucial junction where we need people to understand like, no, 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 no. Predictive policing is not a way to get around from racist cops. Like they're racist to the core. That's the whole, it just like, that's just how we have to fight it. We actually have to block that out, get that out of the budget. Let's defund that. There's actually like a path forward. Similarly with ankle shackles. No, it's not an alternative to detention like Biden, right? Like the smart border wall. Like there's all these kind of examples that are really led by marketing by these same companies, right? It's part of the capitalist model of like how they're selling their products. And so for me, it's our job as organizers to arm our people with the not only the ideas and like the political analysis, but also the like literally the talking point doc, literally the the organizing strategies to be able to push back to have that understanding. And also, again, in the feeling of sometimes it feels too big to take on, right? No, this is actually, we're, we've been part of this movement for centuries. Our ancestors have been part of it. This is part of the same lineage. And so give people those tools because... 
there have been plenty of moments in history where it felt impossible to take on whatever system you were taking on and people have done it and people have been fighting. And so for me, it's just kind of important to be able to have those two connections and total shameless plug. Like for us, that's a lot of the reasons why we launched Tech Wars because we precisely want to create those spaces where you might not feel like you have read the full book. But, you know, a professor can come in and, and mad shouts out to, to remember uh, Ulises Mejia's professor from, from a university who came with like 10 minute PowerPoint presentation with, you know, Star Wars themed slides talking about data colonialism, right? You got two talking points, you can take it home, spread the word and kind of be able to offer our people those rinse and repeat tactics that really help um yeah, just grow our organizing and, and grow the the amount of people that that are feel part of this fight and feel connected to each other and have a shared language about how they're doing that organizing. Thank you. I'm going to pose a question to you all from the from um, everyone watching in. So the question is, how do we become obscure or illegible to surveillance technologies that mark and limit bodies and futures without losing points of contact between identities in diverse communities? over to any and all of you. Well, I was just gonna show a scary non-answer to this, which is there was an article, I believe in Time Magazine about eight years ago, and it was CIA and NSA agents complaining how hard life is for them at the border now due to facial recognition technologies, and that it was making it much more difficult um, for them to go under like as covert ops. And so this was this was requiring them to change their strategies about not, you know, about being more meta open and creating like things of distraction um, because they cannot be anonymous in the same way when they go outside of the United States lines. Um, and I just thought that was, you know, on one hand, it's probably not fully true. Right. Like they're not out here putting, you know, their full secrets in the mainstream media. Uh, but I think the other part is that, you know, this tells us how space is changing because we see this in labor organizing as well. Why are people less willing to like sabotage things at their jobs um, and to take different kinds of risks is because every paper is counted because the, 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 the link between causality and like identifying who actually committed X, Y, Z action is a lot harder to hide when you're under this, these kinds of modes of surveillance. So I think that requires us to think about how do we take a step back and fight before the implementation of certain new technologies, or how do we think around it, like maybe detaching it from certain kinds of power sources, making it an energy question. I don't know if this is the place to go into super specific tactics, uh, but I think it's a major area of concern. So I appreciate this question. I think what it makes me think of, which is a little bit of a deviation from what you just said, Khadija, but related is, at some point, I was on the phone with the dude who worked under Obama, who created the risk assessment tool used by ICE, and he made a like really intense point of how belabored he was to include in transgender identity into the tool, um, and how important it was to him and the administration to do so. And I mean, I don't think this is exactly what the question is asking, but it's what comes up for me is, you know, I don't think that we're going to come up in the next couple of decades with ways to completely avoid a lot of these technologies. But I think that's why I've been so empowered. Like, 
I feel so inspired by the framework of, of, of power, not paranoia, because we're not actually getting people to try to figure out how to invisibilize themselves. We're actually thinking about how do we build collective power so these same systems aren't controlling people's um, lives and communities in the same way. So to me, it's very similar, like in the immigrant rights movement, like 15, 20 years ago, attorneys would tell people like, never talk publicly about your immigration status, right? Like don't put that out there because if they know that's a vulnerability. But there was such transformation in power where there was actually like, let's flip this and let's talk about it openly, right? And it started with students, but then it started with young people. It started with 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 folks who have grown up in the United States, but then their parents did it too, right? And there was actually this, this very power empowering moment of like, let's not actually hide from these things or try to invisibilize, but actually let's try to take away the power of what it can mean to have someone have that control over you. And so I think there's just different ways of kind of seeing it that can be flipping the switch in terms of what does it mean to have collective action that might use some of these technologies, might be part of those same systems, but it's still fighting back at that more radical sense of like how we think of ourselves and how we think of, of who can have control over who we are and how we act. Um, I think especially building off of what Cynthia just said about power and paranoia, I think one of the things that um, over and over and over again keeps coming up as cities start doing things like procuring shot spotter to contend with like a gun violence crisis and things like that is a capitalizing on that paranoia, right? To make folks feel like public space is unsafe for them, to make that like, right, activating that fear to deter them from congregating and things like that, right? And I think like, breaking these technologies down, you know, public education, community education that makes them simple and banal and mundane is very, very important because I think that like that hype is getting to a lot of people, that marketing is getting to them and it's literally making them afraid to be out in public. And I think that's important. And that's, that's work we have to do, I think, as organizers. Um, and, you know, the other thing that I, I think that like, you know, the idea of like, in like, how do we hide from or how do we like obscure and things like that? Like for me, that answer is just a million different experiments. And I guarantee you all of them are going to fail. And then every single time they fail, you're going to learn something, right? Like a story that recently surfaced from the 2020 uprisings was like during, during the protest in some cities, uh, you know, every night you'd have to produce a new map because of like how the police were kettling or like protesters. Right. And at one point, we're, like, I remember, like, what if we just, like, make an, like, we just hand draw the map, right? We're just going to keep it off of the computer. And we're going to, like, staple it to telephone poles, like, dog walker signs. And, like, this is how we're going to do it. And it's going to be, like, surveillance proof. And it absolutely failed because, like, nobody gets their information from telephone poles anymore, right? Like, it absolutely failed. But we learned something, right? So those just over and over and over again, trying different things. Like, what does it mean if you buy, like getting ready for an action and you buy 10 cell phones and you share it amongst a group of people? What does it mean, you know, you start to learn what exactly is that infrastructure that put your report just beautifully lays out. You start to get a tacit knowledge of it, right? And like, our folks are still here, right? And white supremacy has existed for centuries, which means the survival instinct is here. So you just keep experimenting and you find a way through, I think. Thank you all. I was going to joke, Sarah, I still get my information from info, from info polls. <laughs> I was joking at my workplace about going wheat pasting again today. So 
<laughs> putting all the posters up. But thank you all really for, you know, and really for breaking down those those binaries between eligibility and hypervisibility, right? And how do we do that work? How do we do that work to build the power so that those aren't the binaries that we feel stuck and demobilized in? Um, I wanted to invite all of you really to, you know, before we close, this has just been such a brilliant conversation. I can't emphasize that enough. And all the work that all of you do is so vital and just so rooted in really dismantling these systems, right, through this lens of, of data criminalization and surveillance. And I just wanted to invite all of you in um, any final thoughts that you have before before we close. And I really wanted to offer up this quote because, you know, uh, in hearing all of you uh, and your your optimism and, you know, not an optimism that's based in, in romanticism, but really an optimism grounded in, in organizing um, and our collective power. Um, I'm of course reminded of Ursula Le Guin, so many people, but um, Ursula Le Guin, when she wrote, we live in capitalism, its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. And so I wanna bring that invocation to all of you in, in offering any closing comments before we before we wrap up. I'm just so grateful to everyone for being here today and just want to encourage everyone to um, read our website, interact with it. We have a, we have a bestiary, which is um, the databases used by the DHS reinvented as monsters. And we have our report, which we would love feedback on and would love to help make useful to you all in your very many different communities. And yeah, just thank you so much for being here. I so appreciate every one of you and all of the work that you've done over such a long time. Um, I would just echo all of those sentiments. I'm really excited to be a part of being invited into this conversation. And I will just say, I feel like I wanted to focus on the tech part. So I didn't focus as much on the family regulation system part. Um, but I think, you know, social services and these ideas of care that are intergenerational are something that we need to think deeply about both in terms of the tech, in terms of the organizing, it's deeply embedded with the criminal justice system as well as immigration and notions of like autonomy and movement. Um, but with that, thank you so much. And I hope that we can keep these transnational abolitionist conversations going. Yeah, thank you so much to, to CJE and, and the entire team and Puck for, for all of your amazing work to get this report and this website going. Um, it's been a pleasure to be part of the conversation. Con it will con it will continue. Um, and yeah, just just really, really excited and, and grateful to have been part of this conversation because I think that there's we're, we're going to be on this in this fight for a while. And so I think like being able to really kind of continue to build with each other is, is where we're going to be able to, to, to unlock some of the answers. And thank you, Sarah, for those amazing organizing lessons, because they gave me the giggles and just like, the best way to end this. Thanks. Thank you, everybody. Um, I read an early version of this report and then I read the most recent version again last night. And even between those iterations, I think it was like a month in between or maybe two, like it, it was phenomenal to see just even the slight shifts, right? And to see how like the thinking, um, like sitting with those difficult questions and refusing the easy answers, right? Sitting, cause you know, privacy as a framework, like we're, we're given all of the solutions, the solutions that re-embed us back into the exact system, right? And just like 
I don't, I, I don't know if I'm just reading too much into it, but just like what I felt like I was witnessing was a refusal to embrace those questions. And it was really beautifully done. And I just wanted to like, yeah, shout that out to the folks at CJE for doing that. And we'll keep doing that, right? And that's how we're going to map our way out of this. I think that's like a beautiful articulation. And Katisha, in your article, you talk about like mapping our way to freedom, right? We just keep sitting and refusing to take the answers that they give us. And we find our liberation because we know when we're free, right? We're not going to take their version of freedom. Thank you all. Thank you all for this, this world making for making these new maps, for bringing us back to the horizons that we all need and that we're dreaming of and that we're yearning for. Puck, Khadija, Jacinta, Sarah, Haymarket, CJE, all of the translators and interpreters, thank you for this beautiful work. Wishing you all a good evening and until soon. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.